Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good afternoon, good evening, good whatever, good whomever, good however I may find you. This is Alan Averill. This is Agitators Anonymous. This is episode 58. Greetings from a confused, cold and rainy Dublin, Ireland. Confused about whether it wants to reopen or not. Confused about whether the sun wants to shine or not. Generally confused, including me. Well, yeah, feels like quite a while since we had a bit of a chin wag, a bit of a ramble. Quite a lot of things have happened in the last few weeks. Um, if you've listened to the podcast about my trip adventure, um, you know, to Roadburn to take part in the redux and the singing, you'll notice that there was a couple of weeks there where um, I posted some video content. Last week was the great death metal debate with Jason from Misery Index, etc. So it's been a while since there's been a bit of a ramble through a few different opinions about things. So let's make this one of those. Um, Because things are slowly, cautiously, painfully, kind of, sort to maybe opening up, it's making things um, quite complicated, of course. Well, of course they're complicated. Look, it's uh, it's been... Quite the journey through my grey matter over these nearly 60 episodes and you'll have surely got the impression so far that uh, things are always complicated and confusing when it comes to what's inside my skull. But we slowly and very cautiously reopen in the south of Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland, in the Gulag of Ireland. So I'm going to take a little look at a few of the things there, a few little things that have been happening um, around about And let's have a little bit 
of a ramble. Firstly, firstly, poor old Dave, huh? Didn't know that Zoom automatically records when you start using it. Ouch. Well, old man in misunderstanding technology. Shocker. Well, and it was indeed something of a shocker. Um, off the top, I'm going to say www.metalblade.com. If you're in North America, you want to buy the new Cannibal Corpse album, use the promo code AA Podcast, and you will get 10% off your order or many, many, many other things going back over the last 40 years. Go and take a look. So for the second ad read, we have some new sponsors, and they are the label Eisenwald. You probably know them from bands like Ordeal and Plight, The Flight of Sleepnir, Odal, Ungfell, Wada. Um, they're the most up-and-coming, I guess, dynamic label at the moment with some dark post-black metal, pagan metal stuff, all that kind of thing. Um, go and check it out. www.isenton.de forward slash shop. So that's E-I-S-E n-t-o-n dot d-e and that's for both sides of the Atlantic EU and the world um, you get 10% off your order if you use the promo code Alan A-L-A-N so that's Eisenwald worth your while go and check it out loads and loads of interesting bands do a little YouTube journey or a little Bandcamp journey or Spotify journey um, pick out a few have a look all right. Anyway, FOMO. What the hell is FOMO? If you're of the same vintage as me, many of these um, sort of wordy little anachronisms or whatever you want to call it, acronyms, not anachronisms. I'm an anachronism who doesn't understand acronyms, I guess. Um, there's a song title in there for some sort of Mr. Bungle type band. Well, the acronym of acronyms. Um, FOMO, fear of missing out, is something I didn't really understand until about a week or two ago. And somehow, lately I've been trying to consider and think about the kind of people who um, don't mind lockdown, seem to kind of sort of enjoy it. And something um, someone said to me on the roadburn trip sort of resonated with me. A few things have resonated me with the last few weeks, obviously, but one in particular, which was that we were discussing the kind of people, you know, whether it was tech people, I suppose the uh, middle class tech person who doesn't understand the person who works with their hands. And so therefore will side with lockdown. The idea that if Trump had said in the beginning he supported lockdown, many of the people who now support lockdown ideologically would have said they don't. Um, how things spin on a dime and um, culturally, socially, all that kind of thing. But the idea, this FOMO, fear of missing out, and that, that there is a certain section of society for whom um, lockdown appeals to them because, or a form of lockdown appeals to them because life previous to that was full of anxiety, full of rejection, full of negotiating the social contract, which, let's be honest, many people were not great at. My friend pointed out to me, hey, you cracked, you got the life codes. And I never really thought about it like that before, because, of course, with Primordial, it was 30 years of work within the band. And it seemed to be the most natural thing in the world to be getting on a plane and ultimately end up in Buenos Aires or Santiago and then take the week off and go 
right, I'm going to go to Easter Island. I mean, that sounds like a fantastical journey. And I suppose the reality is that that was a journey that most people would have made once in their life, if at all. And it was something that I was doing every year or every other several times a year. I'm not to sound um, all, how shall we say, patronizingly Miss World about it or anything like that. The point was that you created your own structure of freedom, I suppose. And that is that if you had created a band, the structure of touring and all the things that went around it, you then took that as your norm, so to say, i.e. week to week, touring, traveling, Moscow, Mexico, etc. And that's just where your hard work and endeavour and creativity had brought you to that point within the band. Of course, some bands don't get past the first or second rehearsal. Other people, whether they're doing, I suppose, their sports, men or women, they're travelling to take part in um, events. There are many, many things that will have you moving around this world. But for a lot of people, they led, I suppose, a sedentary life, um, an office life that was unfulfilling. Their life was full of the negotiation of the social contract that made them feel uneasy, that made them feel um, unsatisfied. Um, Many of the byproducts, I suppose, of a complex um, post-Second World War um, Western journey, fraught with many complications and mental hoops, I suppose, that many people weren't able to jump through. So... The FOMO, as my friend said, she said to me, now people don't have FOMO because they know that you're not doing what you're doing. In fact, nobody's doing what they were doing. You're never missing out on anything because there is nothing to do. And I thought to myself, wow, that's a really interesting way of looking at this. And it's an angle I'd never looked at this from before or ever. The idea that for some people, the social contract that we navigate every day in society is fraught with rejection in the bar, maybe over somebody you're interested in, um, rejection in the grander scheme of things. It's fraught with social anxiety. It's fraught with the idea that you come out in a cold sweat when you go into a shop that's full of people, all these kind of things. And now, or within the form of lockdown, what's quite clear is that here's your menu. There's one thing on it. Or maybe it's just a the difference in the soup is it's one day it's potato, the next day it's potato and leek, etc., etc. A bad analogy, but it makes sense. There's nothing on the menu now, so you don't need to worry about what you're going to eat for dinner. And that may sound really trite and a little bit simplistic, but I do think that there is something within that that I had misunderstood. And one of the biggest problems that I found within all of this is the ability to get across to people that they should be um, worried or consider other people's freedoms. That, okay, if your life hasn't really changed that much, that whatever the terms of pandemic and lockdown and all these kind of things, they never really changed your life. You should be worried and upset and afraid for other people's freedoms that maybe weren't your own. Like my friend said to me um, last year, why do you care about the theatre? You never went. Well, I care about it because it's one of the oldest expressions of um, art and culture known to man. Let's stand in the square and tell a story to other people. That's why I care about it, because it has historical, cultural weight, impact. And I felt for people who hadn't been able to take to the stage, for writers, for its place within society. If we don't care about 
the things that don't involve us, then we are done for. So trying to get across to people that you should care about the fact that other people's freedoms are impinged and not just see it through the perspective of your own bubble, i.e. that has nothing really to do with me. So ah, I'm going to ignore it until it bumps up against me. People who study social sciences and society's behaviour, I suppose the anthropology that exists behind such a strange situation that we've been living in for the last 15 months, didn't quite see it coming that a great percentage of people would not really want this to end. They quite like pottering around, the quiet life. They quite like that the city is empty and quiet at 11 or that they can choose to go out at a time and not see many people, that they have their small bubble of friends or, let's be honest, that they can have their interaction with people, their extraordinary life online. And that may be just that bit more exciting, I suppose, more fulfilling in a sense. And that, of course, creates a very grave danger for social society that worries me. But it seemed to worry people, worry other people far less because, as I said, the social contract was fraught with many, many negatives, so to say, many, many complicated relationships to negotiate, to navigate. And once they were removed, much of people's anxiety was removed. Now, of course, for someone like me, who's used to bounding around the world and wants to move, wants agency, wants purpose, wants creativity, is like relentlessly following something, uh, willing something into being, whether it's a tour, it's music, it's blah, 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 blah. blah. The idea of being sedentary and still is a kind of um, complex hell because you're just navigating the same couple of streets and, uh, you know, of course it seems like you're just wading through molasses day to day. But for other people, it's been quite the opposite. So it's been quite an interesting thing for the last few weeks to try and consider the reasons why um, the situation that we're in bothers some people less or more. Why people are unable to see more than one narrative, which I'm going to get into, that kind of thing. But maybe it was the perfect storm um, for the West in a sense that I see that Um, we had a pandemic response developed over a decade or more um, and we literally threw it out the window um, in, I suppose, fright and fear um, over what was happening in Italy. And we adopted this draconian authoritarian model from um, a Chinese structure of dealing with society. And um, it somehow was the perfect storm in many respects to deal with an ageing Western society. A nation of let's call it maybe partially indulged middle-class hypochondriacs um, who are risk-adverse. The second and the third world, they understand and they accept risk as part of their daily life. We've all watched on the news from the comfort of your own home how, for example, children going to school in the second or third world, whether it's Afghanistan, as we saw recently, um, their school was bombed for girls wanting to go to school I mean, our indulged, soft Western lives cannot even imagine that form of jeopardy or risk involved in life. But yet here we are, old and plump and a um, a pear-shaped ageing demographic. What I mean by that is that Europe is an old and ageing society. So was it any surprise that we leapt into the, um, leapt at this form of authoritarianism to bridge the gap? and try and annihilate, or annihilate is the wrong word, but 
remove risk and jeopardy from our lives. And now it feels we're like we are in this feedback loop that can we cannot quite remove ourselves with because to stop feedback, you've just basically got to stop the machine. And that machine is now a moving form of authoritarianism. The idea that freedom was willingly sacrificed for the greater good of health and safety. There's pros and cons to that. But the argument itself was not really discussed because, in my opinion, as I said before, democracy and liberty, human rights, in a sense, on these broad terms, have been somewhat paused. So all of this, did it fit into our idea or my, let's say, my idea that's been ruminating on for the last week or two, that it was almost the perfect storm of an aging, aging, indulged middle class society of hypochondriacs to decide that we will take the um, hit for locking young people up, so to say, for the greater good. But like I said, we are in the feedback loop. And now we have our cyber attack. In Ireland, we had a cyber attack, which they say is um, Russian, a Russian criminal gang trying to hold our health service to ransom. And who could not correlate that with um, videos of Klaus Schwab from the World Economic Forum warning us of cyber attack? Like I said, it's very hard for all of this to not be fertile ground for those who see things in terms of conspiracy. But what I will say is this, um, and it's something I've also been thinking about. The term conspiracy theory to me is an easy way out for people who don't want to consider things, who don't want to debate, who don't want to um, look at all, look at the bigger picture, look at the immense detail that is very often involved in complex geopolitical negotiations, or as I said, the negotiations of that social contract even. Um, historically, has there ever been just the one narrative? Never. I often say to people, how did the First World War start? Well, it's complicated, Alan. Yes, it is complicated. Was it Gabriella Princip only shooting the Archduke um, that day in Sarajevo? Was it only that? No. Or was it the previous 20, 30 years? Was it German expansionism in the late 19th century? Was it Germany's, um, was it Germany's inability to create a, an empire that spurred them on to this form of um, grandstanding saber-rattling. I don't know. Like I said, there's many, many angles. And it's been very frustrating to try and deal with people who will, from my side, who will only see what's happening now in society in terms of one narrative. Now, if you say to me, Alan, I haven't got the mental space to cope with all of that stuff. It's too dark. It's exhausting. I need to follow a simple path because it's going to get me through this. That's totally fine. Or you're a pain in the arse and I don't want to listen to you. That's also totally fine. But to say it doesn't exist doesn't make sense. Skepticism is the rational perspective on everything. It always has been. To question. Not cynicism, but skepticism. They are very different things. And that's what I found is that the constant um, inability to get across the point that there are multiple narratives... What I get back from people is, that's a conspiracy theory. Well, now, a year, 14 months ago, we were told that this came from the mythical pangolin to the bat to the human. Or was it bat, pangolin, human? One or the other. And that the lab leak hypothesis was conspiracy theory. And now we see the head of the CDC challenging Fauci, challenging that narrative. And now, slowly but surely, even the New York Times is beginning to tread a few steps back on its 
proclamation that all of the things were conspiracy theory as the lab leak hypothesis looms into view. I tread carefully around these things because I, of course, I'm not a virologist or an immunologist, just a singer in a heavy metal band. But 14, 15 months ago, we were told that was a conspiracy theory. And now it's not a conspiracy theory. It's our theory. Epstein had an island, right? Hmm. So I would just say to be wary of constantly saying that things are conspiracy theory just to get yourself out of a hole, so to speak, um, to avoid debate, to avoid discussion. It's easier to go, I haven't got the fucking headspace. I'm too mentally exhausted with all of this. Can we not just have a beer and listen to the first Wasp album? That's a perfectly good answer. And in fact, it's probably a better answer than um, engaging me with my insanity. But the idea that we can just um, we can just dismiss things out of hand by calling them conspiracy theory is, I think, um, intellectually redundant. And I don't think we should subscribe to that. I think we should use those words with caution because the implications for subscribing to this form of um, dismissal of debate is partially what's wrong with modern society. It's what has us in such a complex and difficult place. Third ad read now is hate couture. I've said it before. You want to offend your friends? Got a few friends who are a little bit touchy-feely, emo, eaten. Maybe you do. Want to offend them horrifically? Well, this is the place to go. Hate Couture. H-A-T-E-C-O-U-T-U-R-E. 616.com. Grim, grisly, offensive t-shirts, venerating serial killers and tyrants of all description. Go there, use the promo code Alan, and you will get free shipping. And believe me, that's worth a lot these days. Shipping is outrageous. I know this from using... The Dread Sovereign Bandcamp sending out vinyls um, here, there and everywhere. Shipping is crazy. So go and have a look. Who wouldn't want to venerate serial killers or tyrants? Who wouldn't want to? Hate Couture, 616.com. And like I said, the First World War argument is a bit complicated, but I would say something more simple like maybe you've watched the show on Netflix called The Thick of It, which is a brilliant show. Um based around English politics in the 1990s, the new New Labourites, um, Alistair Campbell, and the Tories on one side and the Labour on the other. And it's all about spin. And anybody who's worked in government has told me that sometimes it hits the nail quite on the head. What is spin? Spin is the spinning of the story. Um, the whip in every party tries to gather everyone um, on the back benches to support the party. Um, and spin is a very important concept in a way, because what it is, is basically aligning people to believe in the party line. Now, that party line may be fundamentally a lie or designed to move the public in one way or the other. And we can see how important public opinion has been in shaping the narrative around the last 15 months. But the idea that there is only one narrative to this, I butt my head against the wall constantly with people when they may, when they it's been like a religious mantra, which is there are only X amount of beds. It's blah, 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 blah. And you realize you're still discussing the same localized health and safety narrative. And you try and go, OK, I get that. I agree with you. But can we discuss the geopolitics? And people go, no, 
I don't really want to do that. Now, if you say to me, I don't want to do that because it breaks my brain and you're a pain in the arse, I will accept that. But if you say they don't exist, you can't say that because it's untrue. I very much view things in the terms of not to 100%, i.e., most of our lives are inhabit, inhabit the grey area between naught and 100. Nothing generally is an absolute. So therefore, there is always more than one narrative. There's always spin. Um, there is always, as I said, it's just a pandemic, blah, 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 blah. Really? OK, then let's discuss biometric health passports, the things I brought up in episode one and two. That's another narrative. There is always other narratives. And what I understand is that for some people, it's kind of like doing the religious lottery um, in that uh, repeating the health and safety mantra has become almost religious and that you're dealing with someone who has a religious form of belief. If you convince yourself every day that you're going to go to heaven when you die, for example, <laughs> that's a rather, a rather overreaching of example, you don't start to doubt it the day before because you think, well, maybe that isn't true. I mean, Pascal's wager tells us you might as well. But the point being that if you've invested in the lottery, let's say the emotional lottery, the roller coaster of the last 15 months, um, and you've invested it in the health and safety mantra to then have someone go, well, you know, actually, I think that's maybe not 75 percent true, but 20 percent true or less or whatever to introduce doubt, questioning, um, skepticism into the into the arena of the religious is very difficult for the religious to um, give in to. And so people double down. And so you all of this creates this perfect storm. It's like a religious investment. Um, people came with their biases before. Um, but yet I listen to I listen to people and they'll go, ah, Jesus, the bleeding government, you couldn't trust them to do this, that and the other. Look at this. Uh, look what they did with this, that. X, X, X. Many, many examples through history. And you go, I see. Right. OK. And then in the next sentence, we'll repeat the health and safety mantra. And you go, how do you not see the cognitive uh, dissonance or the uh, maybe that's the wrong expression, but see the contradiction between sentence one and sentence two? If you take a historical example of a, um, a, historic exa a historical example of where the state or agents of power did not care for who you are, your personal liberty, um, whether they sent your sons and daughters off to war, whether they died needlessly through um, mismanagement, many, many things. Uh, use that example and then apply that logic as, you've, as you have observed that example to this situation but it seems to be kind of impossible for some people. The idea that there is only one narrative um, is kind of, I think, what will keep us in a state of um, a state of perpetuity over some of these new rules and laws and restrictions because um, people will be unwilling or are unwilling to consider the many, many angles from which to look at this, i.e. the authoritarian perspective. Um, the idea that, and I've said it before on the podcast, the idea that biometric passports represent um, a great tool for evil. People go, Alan, come on, what are you talking about? And I'll say this as an example. Let us take the Arab Spring. How the West 
love to watch the Arab Spring. And I just said to my friend, I said, well, do you think the Arab Spring could have happened if every person in the crowd, for example, had a biometric passport, a phone that was tracing them to being out in Tahrir Square um, that was maybe about to freeze their accounts? And that's the problem, is that how are these things correlated? If the platform is benign and only has access to that one thing, which is that literally that um, that you can scan into this or that or the other, um then okay if it's a benign platform fair enough but if it's going to be used to basically say um, we now have a structure which requires your conformity in order to lift restrictions for you to take part in life well you can see how that would be used against you if everybody is on the universal basic income or let's say your assets could be frozen your income could be frozen your ability to take part in society could be frozen based on your level of conformity or dissent. Well, is that not a possibility? Then yes, you should think about it. Therefore, there is other narratives to the idea and a reason why throughout the last 10, 20, 30 years, historically, many, many human rights groups and indeed governments across the Europe, across Europe and the West have resisted the idea because it feels too authoritarian. But now in the gap that's happened in the last 15 months, as we as we allowed um, elements of the authoritarian way of dealing with this situation to settle into society, a lot of old metaphorical uniforms have been dusted off. A lot of ghosts have been recalled from the shadows. A lot of graves have been dug up and a lot of zombies are marching through the streets again, metaphorically, to go, oh, okay, you want a little touch of authoritarianism? Let's, let's have at it. Here it is. Now, of course, I have said this many times in the podcast before, at the very worst, I'm right to a degree. At the very least, I just look like a grumpy old fool, and that's fine. Well, I should qualify that by saying I'm not that bleeding old. I think I was born old, actually. I'm perfectly willing to accept that no problem but if some of this is right then in three four five ten years as i said all these different clauses being brought in across um across the west across for new rules for government with no sunset clauses a sunset clause is basically that a new law has only a certain time frame within which to exist and then as the sun sets which is hence its name it is no longer valid. But all of the new rules, for example, in Ireland, which have been given to the police, the state, have no sunset clauses, as I understand it. Do they across Europe? Is the biometric health passport going to only be used within the time frame of this pandemic? Do we really believe that? A simple cursory look at all of the things we know about big tech and censorship and platforms and all this kind of stuff will say, no, of course. Why would they? And so therefore we get back to our idea that there is only a single narrative, um, that there's only one thing happening. We of course know that that's not true. It may be comforting to believe that there is. And like I said, it has an element of the religious to it, to me, as every religion claims ownership of the one narrative and the one true God, the one true whatever. Similar to um, somebody who is, say, like me, an open sceptic. And I will go, all right, let's hear the Buddhists out. Uh, let's hear the Christians out. Let's hear the Pentecostals out. Let me hear all of your stuff and I will assess it on my own terms. They all claim to possess the one 
sort of truth. So in a sense, the unwillingness to deviate from this one simple narrative has something of the religious about it, something of doing the religious emotional lottery to it. People say to me, oh, isn't the, isn't the, um, isn't the passport issue just like getting your yellow fever malaria shot? But it's not. It's very different. The history of that shot goes back 70, 80 years. There isn't a huge economic financial structure readily in place around it. You are also, in theory, as a foreigner going to visit, let's say, um, El Salvador, Cambodia, etc., you are protecting the locals from what you bring there also. Um, but it's about the concept of coercion. You've been asked to take for example, to take part in this, to have freedom within your own home country. I took the yellow fever, the malaria shot, when I went to Southeast Asia, to, um, to Angkor Wat, to Cambodia. But I was asked to do that, to go to a distant country, which has, um, I suppose, a different um, ecosystem of germs and animals and all sorts of things within it. This is being discussed to give you elements of freedom within your own country. And it might be as simple as just being able to go to a gig, a pub, a, a shop to buy this and that and the other. Um, and the yellow fever vaccine is a piece of paper. It's not electronic. It doesn't have the chance to be correlated with the rest of the data that is in your phone. Um, there's no structure around it. There's no coercion incentive. Um, and as our, our politicians said for many years, is um, we don't want to become a papers please society. We know what those societies were and they were the societies that were um, enthrall to isms of the 20th century. So these short-term decisions have very great long-term consequences. Um, short-term decisions and short-term decision-making, which seems to be to frame an awful lot of the current narrative of the situation, can have dire long-term consequences. It's why I say to people who have children who dismiss um, some of the things I discuss as, oh, it's conspiracy theory, and I go, listen, it's your kids who might have to grow up with some of these things in four or five or six years. I don't have any yet. Um, well, not that I know of. Um, answers on a postcard, please. But, um, you know, it's... Um, it's... It's... Uh, your offspring that are going to have to probably inherit some of these things. Well, I mean, of course you will too. But short-term decisions have long-term long -term consequences. FOMO. Fear of missing out. But I return to my theory about FOMO. But what people forget, I think, is that it is the public's job. It is people's right to hold power to account. Um, I think that our mainstream media, many journalists, many um, media outlets have forgotten this because they are in bed, so to speak, with the agents of power and influence, where once upon a time, 30, 40, 50 years ago, there was investigative journalism and stories that held power to account. Um, that, I think, has been sadly forgotten over the last 15 months, the idea of holding power to account. But the right to protest is an inalienable right to hold power to account. Now, what if, as I said, your biometric passport is the key to not being able to, the key, the lock, to not being able to hold that power to account because, as I said, that phone, that platform, that app is entirely, um, your entire ability to access society is based upon that. And that access can be revoked. 
Just like when you don't pay your bill to go to the gym and you go down with the card and you go, oh, it's not working. And you go, oh, yeah, I cut up that credit card and threw it in the bin. Oh, I forgot to update it. Ain't no going to the gym for you that day. Another clumsy analogy. But you see my point. The point being that after the Capitol Hill um, riot, so to, I, as I understand, every single person who was there that was correlated with their GPS data was visited by police and state. Now, if you are on one side of the divide, the cultural divide, you'll cheer that on. But the idea that it doesn't come for you in the end is naive. The idea that you can only cheer these things on because they happen to the other side is again naive because they will come for you. And that's part of the debate, part of the argument here. Now, am I being hyperbolic and over the top? Very well, maybe. I mean, like I've often said during this podcast, um, my hypotheticals, within my hypotheticals and my observations, um, I have always reserved the right to um, be wrong or will I'm willing to update my opinions about things. I mean, that is, after all, the scientific method. People often say to me, follow the science. And I go, really? But you do realize that science not only can be wrong, but it's the very nature of its of what it is, is it updates itself with new information. Um, the idea of examining the empirical data that might inform an update is part of it. So if you say to me, follow the science, and I go, yeah, but you're basing that off a model that was created 15 months ago, which is no longer applicable, then you must follow the science, so to speak. Many times it's people who misunderstand the word science, I think, who say things like follow the science. Very similar to people who use the phrase conspiracy theory who don't really understand the word theory. But I suppose there is an interesting correlation to be made between something like a virus and religion itself, because... Um, we are dealing with something that is invisible, so to speak, and that requires a great amount of belief in the structure and the narrative to accept that omnipresence, um, which is, I suppose, why many of the mantras of these last 15 months have taken on an element of the religious. But as somebody who has always resisted the temptation to be involved in that, whether it was before this or whatever, who's always questioned religion, faith. Um, I understand the need for the journey, but I don't believe that there's a destination, so to say. Um, it has its worth, but when its worth in this sense, I suppose, is on so many levels destructive to society, to concepts of liberty and freedom, there is a very complex trade-off that's involved. And it is complex. Like, how much freedom do you trade for health and safety? Because there is a trade. I've never said there isn't a trade that should be within that uh, debate. But the fact that there is very little debate and the trade seems to be almost completely one-sided, um, regardless of statistics, that's the problem, I think, for people like myself who err on the side of liberty or whatever else, you know. Um, I understand that word, as I said before, has different connotations in America than it does in Europe. Um, the idea of a libertarian, and I might do a podcast on this, the idea of in the States is different to in Europe. I mean, look, liberté is enshrined in the French, égalité, fraternité, liberté. It's enshrined in um, the concept of European civilization in a different way, perhaps, than in America. I mean, I mean traditionally, you know, if you look, well, not traditionally, but if you look at the... Um, the pandemic response that was created before it happened, um, I suppose, 
the Robert Koch Institute and all that kind of thing, their pandemic response that they laid out, as I understand it, lockdown was not considered because it was considered undemocratic, un-European. It was considered to be too much when it came to human rights. And you saw Niall Ferguson saying uh, they followed the Chinese authoritarian model and couldn't quite believe it, that it... uh, that they were allowed to get away with it. And that should be all you really need to know if you're still supporting it, is the idea that you are supporting something that was inherited from an authoritarian regime. But what I found consistently with all of this is that if I say I have questions, it frames me as this, as that, as the other, how can being sceptical or questioning or inquisitive frame you as one or the other. It should frame me in the absolute middle ground, which is what I've always tried to say. I'm somewhat politically homeless, but I, I have questions about that, about being homeless. But the idea that there is um, only one response to the question, i.e., if you say, um, if you present an argument, then the complete opposite is only the alternative. Again, this is contrary to... Um, Logic, as in, every argument has many different points in between. So if I say, for example, I oppose the authoritarian nature of some of the elements of what's happening, the uh, the opposite is not, oh, why do you want everyone to run wild and fucking in the streets and blah, 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 blah. You know, you want it to be like Carnival Mardi Gras every day of the week and blah. That's not the answer. The opposite extreme is not always what things are. Now, I think this has been perfectly played and framed by social media for the last 10 years. I said this before, the uh, post-Occupy movement idea, or let's say the post-Occupy movement, um, the politics of the multinationals who were correctly identified by the Occupy movement as the 1%, they then have spent the last 10 years in framing the narrative around the terms of divide and conquer within society. In that, I say this, which is a pretty middle ground question and I get framed as the opposite because we're basically being placed at loggerheads with each other, being placed um, in opposition constantly because the middle ground has been completely eroded from our society. The ability to ask normal questions has been eroded and everyone is looking for their gotcha moment. Gotcha, I gotcha, I gotcha, etc. Because everything is about yes it's about the clicks it's about if it bleeds it leads narrative for the mainstream media all that kind of thing so being in the middle and going hang on i have my hand up uh i'm an open skeptic but i have a question about this immediately frames you as the worst person in the world when in fact it should frame you as the most sensible person in the room if you have questions should be however however ask yourself You know, was there weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? Doesn't seem to be. Yet we got that every day. Every day in the 24-hour news cycle. They repeated the mantra. They tied Saddam Hussein to Al-Qaeda, to um, Afghanistan, to Osama bin Laden, when in fact they were from different elements of the faith. They were actually opposed to each other, fundamentally. Yet... Our media here spun it that they were in cahoots together, um, like two supervillains parading around the world. And it was our job to bring them justice. And there was the WMDs, of course. 
and of course wasn't one of the documents about the weapons of mass destruction um, written by what it would seem like a bored civil servant who'd taken the story of um, The Rock. I don't know if you ever have are familiar with this movie. It's Sean Connery, as I understand it. And there's these kind of, um, there's a nuclear element to it that the bad guy has these, um, I suppose, this, what do we call it? A dirty bomb, I guess. A nuclear dirty bomb. These little cylinders, the cylinder with these little balls and etc etc go and watch the movie I should have really thought about this before I started rambling about it but it seems like um, a bored and imaginative civil servant had taken the storyline from The Rock and applied it to a story about well a, a dossier a sexed up dossier about weapons of mass destruction that were in Iraq which was then repeated in Parliament in the UK you think I'm joking well, now I may have got a few of the little details. They're a bit looser on the edges of my grey matter, but it ain't wrong. And what am I trying to say with that? What I'm trying to point out is that scepticism is healthy and that there is always other narratives. And that it's been a while since I went through one of these rambling diatribes. And I get the impression that some of you have been um, kind of are more interested in these kind of rambles than maybe the talking about the first Day Aside album or Morbid Angel or Heavy Metal. Well, we have the balance. We have the balance. Over on the YouTube channel, I've been doing these call from the grave things as well, looking back over bands' careers. But the podcast can be used for those kind of things sometimes. And I'm glad to be indulged by so many of you to throw out some of these ideas and opinions. But again, we were spun it. It was spun every day on the 24 news cycle. Weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass destruction. And then there was an invasion of Iraq. And what do we know about that? How many people died? Hundreds of thousands of people died. And the repercussions were felt across the Middle East that are still being felt that were the, 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 the ripples could still be felt and were partially... Um, the wave that brought the migrant crisis was a wave that came from that initial drop in the ocean back then of um, the war in Iraq. All those kind of things. But that was what you were told. We were told constantly through the mainstream media cycle. The spin. The spin. So all I've been trying to say with this podcast, this rambling podcast, is there are multiple narratives. There always was there always has been and there always will be. If you don't want to engage with them for whatever reason, exhaustion, tiredness, the fact that they seem so dark and that you need a fucking break from them, that's fine. But to say they don't exist is fundamentally incorrect. It's irrational. It's illogical. If you want to be on that side of the fence or of that side of history, that's also okay. Your prerogative. And this podcast ain't for you. That's all right. But... There are multiple narratives. We exist in the grey area. In fact, we're in it now. Because I can look out my window and see rather ominous grey rain clouds. Kind of similar to the kind of clouds that have been hanging over my head for the last 15 months. My friends, it is a ramble, a grey, crazy ramble. Thank you for sticking in there with me. This is Agitators Anonymous. I am Alan Averill. This is episode 58. Planet Satan over and out.